difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with Keith Phipps, Genevieve Kosky, Scott Tobias. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're slathering on the blue eyeshadow, practicing our most brilliant smiles, and looking straight into the camera as we explain our grand ambitions to get out of this small town trap and into the big leagues. Scott, you've just about gotten your triple axle down, so why don't you get out there and represent your country by telling us what's on the docket this week? Okay, but only if you can promise this podcasting gig is going to lead to attention from prominent Hollywood producers, because otherwise you're holding me back, and then who knows what I might have to do to you. <laughs> oh. This week's films are both mockumentaries about ambitious women with big dreams and big entitlement, both trying to get ahead in spite of judgmental systems that seem to exist to keep them down. Both of them are used to slapping on big, fake smiles to please an audience, but both of them end up as true crime story tabloid fodder once the men in their lives try to settle their problems with violence. But there are some crucial differences. In Gus Van Sant's bleak, stylish 1995 satire to die for, wannabe star Suzanne Stone uses her teenage lover to get rid of the husband she thinks is holding her back. Craig Gillespie's new crowd-pleaser, I, Tanya, on the other hand, suggests that Olympic skater Tanya Harding was completely innocent of using her husband and his buddies to arrange an assault on her skating rival, Nancy Kerrigan. But both women do face significant ugly prejudice that gets in the way of their dreams. And both of these stories are told as bright, fast-moving tragic comedies with a little farce thrown in. Both are based on real-life events, and both play with the truth in different ways. So we're going to look at To Die For and I, Tanya together to see how both these movies address the truth, what the news media makes of it, and how filmmakers have their own way of picking it apart. Suzanne would do anything to be famous. She's going to be the next Barbara Walters. I believe that Mr. Gorbachev, you know the man who ran Russia for so long? I believe that he would still be in power today if he'd had that big purple thing taken off his forehead. To be on television. You're not anybody in America unless you're on TV. Was a chance she would die for. You're on. Good evening from the WWE and Weather Center. Weather Center? Have any of you actually ever been on television before? To be a star. You've got to be able to do things that ordinary people wouldn't do. Was the opportunity she would kill for. (sighs) Okay. (laughs) And that's exactly what she did. I don't think I need to tell you that today was a hard one. With just a slight chill in the air. Three. Nothing is going to stop her. Two. Did you get the gun? Yeah. One. Columbia Pictures welcomes you to the real America. Suzanne, did you get those kids to kill your husband? Where criminals get to be celebrities. It was on First Edition and American Justice. And celebrities get away with murder. It's nice to live in a country where life... Liberty and all the rest of it still stand for something. Nicole Kidman is to die for. 
Back in 2004, Buck Henry was asked in an interview with Stop Smiling magazine about the common threads between the best-known films he'd written. The Graduate, which we looked at in detail back in episode 100, Catch-22, based on the Joseph Heller black comedy novel, Get Smart, a big-screen adaptation of the 1960s TV show, and To Die For, which he based on the Pamela Smart murder case. Asked whether his work is fundamentally about the absurdity of social norms and people dealing with crazy systems, he said these films are more about people reaching an age where they feel they've been sold a bill of goods and that what they're doing and how people see them don't align with each other. Quote, I think The Graduate resonates because a large percentage of people, at least in my generation, felt that they had spent four years studying for something that no longer existed or pertained. Maxwell Smart works for a system that makes no more sense than the enemy's system. Suzanne Stone tries to negotiate a ladder that will take her to fame and fortune under completely false pretenses, and for no good reason except that it's there. I guess it's about questioning values, mostly. And the difference between them is that Benjamin Braddock is aware that he's questioning values, and he doesn't get what they tell him, whereas Maxwell Smart and Suzanne Stone aren't, end quote. So what do we make of the idea that Suzanne Stone in To Die For is questioning the values of the society she's in? On the surface, she looks like a vapid social climber, eager for fame without really having any idea what fame is or why she needs it. Suzanne is a young wife whose life in the small town of Little Hope, New Hampshire, isn't enough for her. She wants to be big in television, or films, she doesn't seem to be sure which. She's played by Nicole Kidman, who gives her a Barbie doll glassy-eyed look half the time when she's parroting what other people have told her about TV, or pretending to listen when other people talk about boring subjects, like anything that's not her. But sometimes, Suzanne gets a deeply penetrating look that suggests she knows exactly what's going on, and she's ready, as one sleazy producer tells her early in the movie, to do things ordinary people wouldn't do to get ahead. That includes seducing high school student Jimmy, played by a young Joaquin Phoenix, and ordering him to kill her husband Larry, played by Matt Dillon. Why exactly does Suzanne want Larry dead? That's a good question, and Henry and director Gus Van Sant don't delve very far into it, because it doesn't seem like Suzanne herself has delved very far into it. The film is openly about image, how she sees herself, how the media sees her, how Jimmy and his friends Lydia and Russell see her, how her husband sees her, and how her parents and his parents see her. There are a lot of different visions of Suzanne in this movie, and To Die For brings them across in a variety of ways, through subtle dialogue tricks, through having Suzanne present her case directly to the camera, or by having Jimmy watch her on TV, seeing the image because he can't see the woman. Suzanne herself is obsessed with image, so maybe she just likes the image of herself as a grieving widow more than the image of herself as a woman coming out of a failed marriage. Or maybe Buck Henry just doesn't think much of Pamela Smart, the real-life woman whose case lit up the tabloids in 1991, as it came to light that she seduced a 15-year-old to murder her husband and get him out of her way. Henry's script portrays Suzanne as having a kind of low cunning, a lot of moxie, and an instinctual understanding of how to use her looks to manipulate people, but not much forethought or planning ability. So how does he see this peppy, dark thriller as a story about a woman examining the structures of society, even unknowingly? One clue might come in the early scenes where she faces the ruthless sexism of the entertainment industry, where she's sexually harassed in person and then talked about in leering, gross terms behind her back. She's determined to get ahead in spite of all the men in her way. And once she starts to see Larry, and then after that, Jimmy, as a big barrier she's facing, she doesn't let morals stand in her way either. In an only slightly different version of this story, one framed more like Itania, for instance, she might be a memorable anti-hero, fighting dirty men using dirty tricks. But then again, another only slightly different version of this film would cast her as the femme fatale in a familiar noir setting, complete with a patsy to do her bidding and a husband about to take a fall. To Die For is a lot of things. A satirical examination of a real murder, a grim crime story, a bubbly farce about setting the price of fame higher than it needs to be, and a tragic teen romance gone wrong. We'll look at all these aspects of the film and how they come together after this break. 
like the color? Yeah. Doesn't make me look fat, does it? No. I think I'm gonna get it. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Mr. Moretto is going to... Mr. Moretto? Yeah. Right. Let me tell you something, May. No. No, you wouldn't understand. Maybe I would. <laughs> well, you grow up, you know. You think it's all gonna be like a fairy tale? Like your sleeping beauty, and along comes this Prince Charming, and he looks at you, and it's nighttime, and he smiles at you, and kisses you. Yeah, I, I know that story. <gasps> and then, then you wake up, and it's daylight, and you look at him. It's just when you work all day trying to perfect yourself and create something meaningful, you expect some support. Does anyone ever say, did you have a good shoot today, or how's the editing going, or anything of that nature? I guess not. No. I mean, point is, Larry is a nice guy, you know, but he just doesn't know a thing about television. Okay, guys, let's start with this. This movie was actually made, this was the, the next movie that Gus Van Sant made after even Cowgirls Get the Blues, which was a tremendous, notorious flop. Some of the reviews I read about To Die For at the time suggested that he just, he really needed a hit. He really needed something approachable and fun that, that people liked. And this movie was it. Sort of as you were prepping for this, did you run across any evidence that he had that in mind? Or do you have any thoughts on how this fits into his body of work? Well, that first part is extra textual, as you know, and I don't really care to know what Gus Van Sant thought of it, what his own career move. But I think that narrative seems about right to me because this signaled a shift into more conventional mainstream fare because it was like this and Goodwill Hunting and Finding Forrester kind of like was him edging into the mainstream and then he snaps back hard with the death trilogy starting with Jerry in 2001, which is could not be further from or 2000 even that could which could not be further from you're leaving out a key text here scott it is a film called uh, psycho <laughs> oh, right. psycho. psycho which is which is a very an odd experiment but a, a, certainly an attempt to uh, make psycho play for the kids <laughs> no isn't that what that was i don't i don't all these years later i'm still not sure what that was well he, but he talked he that one god now i'm now i'm to say about stuff he said about his own movie the psycho was a case in which he was trying to make a movie in his words that would introduce psycho to a new generation hmm. which is a horrible reason to remake that movie. i mean we we have dvd players to introduce psycho know, to a new generation we can, but anyway that's a whole nother story but i think i think the narrative plays for me i don't know about the rest of you well i mean just psycho is an interesting way of pointing out that it is a very odd body of work gus van mm-hmm. sands he can be really canny about what the people want and even if they don't necessarily fit into expected shapes like i wouldn't necessarily see this as doing whatever 1995's equivalent of iron man 2 is or whatever but but you know he'll make something like milk which is obviously a project that that means a lot to him but it's also in a very easy to swallow biopic uh, uh form uh, he's an interesting filmmaker in, the, in that respect so this is i think i saw this at a mall in springfield ohio so it definitely played widely but it's not necessarily what you'd expect from a mainstream film 
Yeah, it's an interesting tonal balancing act in terms of like how dark of a comedy it is and how much of a comedy it is, you know. But it also it's his third film in a row with a phoenix, his third for <laughs> his third phoenix in a row, you know, My Own Private Idaho, which we discussed on this with River and then Rain was in Even Cowgirls Get the Blue and here he has Joaquin. And I think in that part of the film when you he's dealing with the kids with mm-hmm. uh, Jimmy and the and the other th- those characters, he's that feels a little bit more at home or more what you mm-hmm. might expect from a Gus Van Sant film than the yeah you know, than plot A yeah and I mean I'm not as well versed in Van Sant as entirety of his filmography but especially like what I do know of him is especially at this point in his career like he's very interested in people on the margins mm-hmm. you know and we saw that a lot in my own private Idaho and you know I think it's easier to see in the storyline with the kids here just because they are all kind of burnouts and I guess like on the margins of high school society but I think it can actually also be applied to Suzanne's story too if you look at her as someone on the margins of the media that she's so desired because I mean like she's getting her start in Little Hope New Hampshire mm-hmm. you know with some cable access. I mean, like she is not the media power player she envisions herself to be destined to become. So she is, I think, kind of a marginalized figure in that respect. I mean, I think it's interesting that she already seems to be too big for the the environment that she's in. Like, she may be an outsider, but part of what makes her an outsider is not just her ambition, which we see in a lot of stories like this, but I mean, when she shows up <laughs> and encounters Wayne Knight running that, uh, that TV station, there's a sense that she's already more like polished and, and big city than the environment she's in, which mm-hmm. is a weird sort of way to, uh, to approach that story. Like, she's not a, she's not an up-and-comer, she's already kind of slumming it to get there, which may just gives the story kind of a weird shape. I think there's a thing, too. I mean, for one, there's the thing where everybody kind of has to start somewhere. <laughs> this is where she starts. But I see To Die For operating a tradition of work like Kind Hearts and Cornets or Facing the Crowd or What Makes Sammy Run, where you do have this narrative where these extraordinarily ambitious and somewhat nefarious people start at the bottom and work their way up by whatever means necessary. They work their way way up and they don't really have any moral fiber at all. They can they do things that other people are not capable of doing because all they're serving is their ambition. A little like a, a certain talented Mr. Ripley, one might say, <laughs> who also kind of starts from nothing and claws his way up. Except I don't think Suzanne ever gets that far. You know, she doesn't really ascend beyond being a self-proclaimed weather girl and on it's, a cable access. It's know? not a jumping off point, really. It's yeah. not, there's really... Is, she's not on the bottom rung of a ladder. She's just on a, a rung. Yeah, yeah. She's standing on a plank and she thinks it's a rung. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly arguable she could have gone further, but like that's not the story that's told here. And it, I think kind of what this story is interested in is how she detours or falls off of that ladder, <laughs> you know, uh, in deciding to take this extreme measure. It's interesting that you spend a lot of the keynote here ad- addressing her character, which to me is like, as much as I love Nicole Kidman's performance here, and it's really dynamic, you're going to dig into this a little bit, because to me, the, the problem I have with this movie is that I, I find it, the, the whole central character so cryptic, and the, and the central point a little obvious to this film. You know, she's obsessed with the media, she wants to be on television, she wants to be famous, and it's kind of it, in terms of this <laughs> character. I, you know, Kidman makes it work, and, you know, Van Sant directs this film amazingly, but it's also... 
to me, the what makes it more most interesting is the stuff around it. The, the, there's there's kind of a hollowness at the center of this film that does, that holds me back from fully embracing it the way I have other Van Sant films. Well, I would honestly agree with you there. For me, the big problem is the ending, which. I think it's a, a great ending and a pre- especially the shot that we get over the credits is delightful. Uh, but it just comes so abruptly and kind of out of nowhere. I mean, there are, there are threads that are used to set up what happens. But the way it happens just sort of seems like uh, we, we didn't really get the third act play yeah. out that would have told us kind of who she was. There's also there's just a sense that she has a plot and it's it's an underwear gnomes plot. It's pretty much <laughs> kill husband, blank, step three fame you know and the fact that i remember i remember also watching this in a mall and coming out of it thinking this was like nothing in the theaters this year it was it was really different and therefore interesting but also thinking just what was her plan i mean she tells joaquin phoenix's character once my husband's dead, we'll be together. <laughs> and then she thinks she can just tell him, and now we're never going to see each other Yeah, again. it almost seems like it's kind of a problem with melding two different stories. So I haven't read the Joyce Maynard novel it, it, it's based on, but so you have the, the panel of smart stuff, which is, seems to be fairly faithfully adapted from life. And then you have sort of this media vampire uh, character, and you kind of graft one onto the other. And, and I think you kind of run into maybe they don't fit together as neatly as you thought when you were conceiving this. But that I, might just be me. I'm going to throw out a suggestion which is that this movie was a lot more uh, subversive when it was made. Mm-hmm. Because uh, one one thing that we're going to get into when we start discussing I, Tanya, is that a, a lot of what shaped that story and it's seen in Craig Gillespie's film is that that was the beginning of the 24-7 news cycle. And that very much affected how her story was interpreted, how it was told, and how it was, it was taken up. I feel like here we're looking at something sort of similar. It's like an analysis of a form of media that was was only just being birthed mm-hmm. at that point. So it's kind of taking on something that now seems a little more old hat to us because we've gotten so many films analyzing it. But at the time, it was like we're addressing the holes in this like fresh new system. So that might have been enough back then. Yeah, I actually had that same thought in watching these two films back to back is that you kind of see the difference in commenting on or being inspired by the, the rise of 24-hour news cycle and media celebrities and even like kind of the birth of reality television, you know, kind works its way in here addressing all that as the rise of it is actually happening versus 20 years on when you can kind of look back with the benefit of seeing all the effects that that have come from that and being able to look at it through that lens but i let me counter that because while now we're we are 20 years distance from to die for to die for itself was 20 Mm -hmm. years distance from the film it most reminded me of which is network Mm-hmm. So, 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 network saw a lot of the things that to die for is sort of seizing on as late as it sees, you know, twenty years later. So, I'm not, I'm not going to give it a huge amount of of, of credit. It, it didn't play for me nearly as well now as it did at the time. And I think maybe that had a lot to do with the revelation that it is Nicole Kidman actress, uh, which was kind of an early thing at that point. But the character she reminded me most of, of course, was Faye Dunaway in Network. This this creature of, of raw ambition and uh Faye Dunaway is my least favorite part of, of network because I think not she, a favorite because, movie of yours which is not not, yeah. not a movie I like um because the satire here and and there it's just it's so heavy-handed and constructed and schematic and just I'm not on board and easy too it's just I think I'm like Keith in that I do appreciate a lot of things around that character and appreciate some of what Van Sant is doing some of what Buck Henry is doing and and, and I do think Nicole Kidman is still extraordinary in the movie but 
yeah, the center of the thing just doesn't hold as well for me as it did um, in 95. I think we're going to get to Nicole Kidman in a little more detail later because I think there's a lot to unpack there. But one thing that I also kind of relates to what we're, what we're talking about here is I think we should talk a bit about the structure of the film because I think the way the film is told in all of these little fragments kind of sewn together, jumping back and forth and with uh, on-camera interviews with the characters kind of filling in some of the blanks kind of contributes to a little a sense of that hollowness because there's sort of a a feeling of watching a puzzle come together Mm -hmm. and by the end it doesn't feel like all the pieces are there what did you guys make of the structure of the film i mean i'm generally a sucker for these kind of like interestingly structured film fourth wall breaking you know just doing interesting things with point of view and narrative so like i enjoyed it but i do agree that it contributes to that sense of hollowness that we keep talking about and i i kind of feel that too about this film in that it feels very constructed and that's not necessarily a bad thing but in the context of a story that is to an extent about constructing a narrative for yourself it feels a little pointed and again it not in a bad way i like it but it's not unobtrusive here's what i found out But all of life is a learning experience. Everything is part of a big master plan. But sometimes it's it's hard to read. I mean, it's like if you get too close to the screen, all you can see is a bunch of little dots. You don't see the big picture until you step back. But when you do, everything comes into focus. I like this this construction, and I, I like it as well. And we'll talk later about I, I tiny as a similar construction, which we know what the thing is. We know that we know what Tanya Harding did. That's not a surprise to anyone, and we know up front what Suzanne Stone does. So then, knowing all that and not having to wait for that as an event that's going to come later and surprise us, uh, we instantly enter into this mode of reflection, you know, and picking apart what happened without having to you know so in that sense it's kind of effective to have the information up front because you get a different kind of movie that way yeah i think it's interesting that you're introduced to larry as a corpse you know that's mm-hmm. that's our first view of him and actually like the shot in the the barn you know the the gunshot in the barn like that's seated super super early in the film and this is my first time seeing this movie so i did not know what that meant and like i hadn't really grokked to, to all the mafia stuff the ethnic family mm-hmm. uh you know <laughs> that, that was a kind of being seated throughout there so but when i you know saw the payoff at the end i was like oh very clever you know like mm-hmm. it, so it did have that like very satisfying feel to it that that this kind of interesting construction can have when done well i think it's also interesting that as much as we're introduced to larry as a corpse we're introduced to Susanna as a murderer mm-hmm. you know we get those we start getting those headlines about her being accused of murder before we yeah. really spend accused time murderer tasha accused murderer <laughs> Uh, alleged oh, yeah alleged. um but yeah there's just that sense of like we we know what's coming and then we back off and and spend time getting there which means it doesn't really play out as a suspense story except to me i guess in kind of in the structure of like how she gets from a to b particularly with with jimmy mm-hmm. because when jimmy and russell and lydia are all introduced they're introduced as these kind of 
really dopey, <laughs> out of it kind of crude teenagers. Uh, as all of these sexual scandals are unfolding in the media, there's once again a lot of debate about at what point like an older person can have sex with a younger person and it, it not being, you know, abuse or exploitation, like whether there's space for that kind of relationship. And it came up again with a lot of people with Call Me By Your Name. Here, these kids just come across as so young. Mm -hmm. Like Joaquin Phoenix is one of the more convincing like teenagers on film that I've seen. He he has that teenage boy dopiness down. I was I was really taken with just how vapid <laughs> he came across in a really in a way that I thought was really good for the character. So while we're speaking of this, and like I said, this is my first time watching the film, so I may have missed something. But is there a reason why Russell is the only one of the teens that we didn't hear from in interviews? Like he, I, I felt his absence as the film wore on. Why he, he was the only supporting character who we didn't get this other point of view narrative from mm, I, it feels like the most marginal of them i guess to the to the actual story uh, yeah he's like an accomplice more than like yeah i guess player. he's he's like the least taken with suzanne of, of the three teens but i mean he's still one of the two guys that you know breaks in and, and kills larry i mean True. and I, I i guess i wondered if it was some sort of reflection of the deal that he copped you know if there was some dialogue making that more clear that i missed but. i don't think there's dialogue making it clear i think that you can either assume that it had to do with the plea that he copped or just the fact that of all of them, he's the one who least has a point of view that he wants out there. Like he's expressing his point of view from the moment we see him. True. And it mostly consists of like wanking gestures and, and sexual jokes. But Lydia has a lot of, of like really painful things that she wants to express about how she felt about Suzanne. Jimmy has similar painful things that he wants to express. And of course, Suzanne has her own worldview mm -hmm. that she has to bring across. And all of them kind of play to the camera as confessionals. I don't think Russell necessarily feels he has anything to confess or anything he wants to share. He may not have an inner life. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's not really clear. <laughs> that actually makes a lot of sense given what we see in the character. I'm just going to – I like I've expressed so many times in so many podcasts and reviews that I just have this, this baseline <laughs> dubiousness about based on a true story films. Mm -hmm. Like we've gone around about it. But I mean, Scott, you, yes. you often tend to have Disagree problems. With you. <laughs> well, you, yes. <laughs> but you also tend to have problems with biopics uh, mm -hmm. for some of the same reasons I do. The way they either package somebody's life into a neat little – this thing was said in childhood, so that's that's the rest of their life. Or they try to cover like the entirety of a life and don't say anything. Mm -hmm. So I'm guess I'm familiar with how everybody at the table feels about based on a true story films. I'm curious how this particular one, like what this one does with the truth, works or doesn't work for you. I mean, I think I would agree with what Keith was saying, which is that it's just a weird grafting of one thing onto another of this of this true story and this kind of media satire thing, and they're both those puzzle pieces don't fit uh, as well as they should. But I, I don't... It's a good observation, Scott. I thought it was great. <laughs> but, you know, the advantage of uh, this story is that Van Sant and, and Buck Henry can just take it wherever they want. This isn't the Pamela Smart story. Uh, there's nobody holding them to it. They can just take what they want from reality and discard the rest. Enough time had passed that I kind of only vaguely remember this was based on anything at all. And I, I intentionally just watched the movie and then did the research. And I was, like I said before, I was kind of surprised by how many details do match up, but it also feels like its own story after a certain point. You know, it, it is if, you know, like Scott said, um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's an echo chamber. Uh, you know, if it were the panel, a smart story, that'd be one thing, but I think, I think they have a, they can, they can go where they want. 
I'll just admit I had no idea. It was based on a true story that Pamela Smart was a little before my time. So I, I think the extent to which I clocked it at all is kind of a general feeling that the story of an older woman seducing a teenage boy to kill her husband felt very familiar. But it could have been a familiarity that came from like movies telling that story different ways and kind of just it being a trope. Then I afterwards I read it, I was like, oh, maybe that's where this trope came from in the first place. So it didn't really affect my viewing of the film because I didn't really know that it was based on a true story. And I think that suggests that it kind of stands alone as its own narrative. Tasha, this is your hang up. Yeah. What, 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 is your, what, is your, what is your take on it? Wow. Putting it that way certainly doesn't make it sound uh, irrational or ill-conceived. I have hang ups too. Oh, really? Oh, do tell. <laughs> is that even possible, uh, Mr. Extra Textual? Uh, no, I'm going to uh, continue to keep the echo chamber spinning um, by I, I kind of echoing Keith, I feel like <laughs> the problem I often have with based on a true story films is uh, just a sense that they're trying to have it both ways, that they're trying to take some gravitas from like, this is a true story. This is what this person's life was really like. <laughs> yeah. And at the same time, discard everything that doesn't fit a neat, pat little narrative. And I often find those neat, pat little narratives very unsatisfying. This is kind of a sprawling, messy narrative. And I love it. I mean, I, I'm getting a lot of kind of dubiousness around the table here. Like, did you guys like this? Film. No, I liked it, but but it was I had misgivings. I enjoyed watching it. I didn't love it. I don't know that it's a film that's going to stick with me for a long time, but it's probably going to stick with me for the rest of the week. So yeah. <laughs> it's mid tier, mid tier Van Sant. Well, if you're comparing it with Van Van Sant, that's that's hardly fair. <laughs> yeah, I I mean for me, it's just there's so many just really idiosyncratic, distinctive things about this film that make it interesting. And a part of that is Van Sant's approach. Just There's so many really strikingly beautiful shots, like the mm-hmm. one where Nicole Kidman blows out the, the candle and everything in the room goes red mm-hmm. right before her yeah. husband is murdered. I like the one of her twirling in the living room as the light changes outside. And That's the one with her in the headlights, you just realize that that is a, a case where the image just so matches the feelings of the character. You can see why Joaquin Phoenix's character is completely enthralled to her. The scene where he's watching her on the television and the television version starts reciting a sexual mm-hmm. fantasy and then we cut to him and his like just glassy-eyed dopey <laughs> face as he tries to process like his feelings for her it's just it's so beautiful there's just there's so many individual moments in this film and to me the fact that like some of them are drawn from real life is not really the important part of the story i guess so hey i mean it works fine for me you just talk yourself out of your hang up <laughs> there, there, there are exceptions to every rule. I'm not Scott. I'm not like a hardliner. I'm, I'm not a, a fist pounding, inflexible Hezbollah burritos and lettuce, uh... burritos and lettuces wrong hardliner. Uh... And let's talk. The tone of the film is kind of the most interesting thing about it. So I'd like to to get your thoughts on that. I I feel like, as I kind of said in the keynote. Presented very slightly differently, this is like a standard noir film. Presented slightly differently, she's an anti-hero who is faced with some really, really gross sexism and kind of strikes back against men. But instead, we get this specific film, which presents all of this stuff with a kind of hearty ho-ho lightness. And it's just a really strange and interesting approach. What, what did you think about kind of how the, the tone of the film affects our, our sympathies with different people here? 
I mean, I never really felt any sympathy for Suzanne. And I think we're kind of laughing at her from the beginning. You know, I don't think she's ever a sympathetic character. She's just like various points on the spectrum of ridiculous. Occasionally you get glimpses of a human behind the ridiculous person. But for the most part, like... I I never really kind of had to square anything in terms of thinking of her as a bad person. In terms of the tone of this movie, for me, like the the character and the performance that really sums it up is Ileana Douglas, who I absolutely love here. And she, I think, has such a good grasp of being able to like swing back and forth between glib wry humor and actual emotion you know behind that humor and the the scene where she finds out about larry's death was just such a amazing reaction from a character who's been kind of in this peanut gallery role and now like you kind of see all the pain that was informing those little remarks of hers i just really like that character and i really like that performance and i think she does a lot to support the tone of this film yeah, because it's kind of a wild ride otherwise between those two tones. So so she is a nice bridge. I mean, it's hard to reconcile. If Suzanne and Jimmy do share screen time together, though it feels like they're in separate movies, they're separate universes, in the sense that Suzanne is this vain, manipulative, diabolical construction, and Jimmy is just so raw and inhuman and earnest. And uh, it's both fascinating and disconcerting in a way for those two elements to clash as they do it's like oil and water so i I don't know i don't know what to make of it i think the film is kind of a wild ride most of the characters in this film are just varying degrees of dumb and i think like that like maybe makes it easier to accept a lack of hidden depth just like presenting them that way as not necessarily all of them shallow characters but all of them somewhat limited characters in terms of their their worldviews and how how deep they are willing to plumb their own emotions again with the exception maybe of Ileana Douglas's character and someone I, I like that also she was portrayed as a character with actual talents that that I mean yeah you know, they, they kind of have some fun with the ice capades you know she gets Peggy Lipton character but she's actually someone who does maybe deserve to have those talents showcased on a larger platform when she goes to the plastic surgeon of course yeah well the, <laughs> the thing with the, the thing with uh with characters playing dumb I, i'm sure matt Dillon is a very smart accomplished person he is so good at playing dumb guys so, and, and he's great in the, he hadn't really i don't think he'd had that many dumb guys under his belt he's pretty dumb in singles but i guess we're kind of used to him playing playing dumb people now but but i mean he gave one of his best performances in, in Van Sant's Drugstore Cowboy and then and as a follow-up like can you maybe <laughs> just be a dumb guy for me for, for this, <laughs> this movie okay so this is something that I said about Wayward Pines did you all oh I followed your Wayward Pines thoughts yes yeah, so about Matt about Matt Dillon if you want relevant to Matt Dillon uh, Wayward Pines of course is that show uh, that sci-fi show that M. Night Shyamalan was involved in where people could not leave the town Right, they were also, they were stuck there and couldn't leave for reasons that get explained later. And Matt Dillon is like the sheriff of of this town. <laughs> I said I like Wayward Pines, but I think Matt Dillon could could also convincingly play a guy who can't figure out how to leave a regular town. <laughs> so that's kind of where Matt Dillon is at. He does he can play the dumbass pretty well. 
That's interesting. I didn't register him as stupid at all. Mm. I registered him as a perfectly ordinary guy who just wants to – he has very small ambitions. He wants to take up his dad's business. He wants to have children and a family. He's kind of dumb. <laughs> He's naive when dealing with Suzanne. Like he doesn't see who she is, which his sister seems to be the only person who does. But he's not dopey in the way Jimmy is. He's not uneducated and uninterested in becoming educated like Russell is. He's not incredibly young like like Lydia is. I think he's just an ordinary guy. I think he's a by... simple man. That's <laughs> <laughs> simple taste. Yeah. Here's the thing about Suzanne, though. Would we think she's dumb if not for that scene with the producer where she doesn't get the joke and he has to explain it to her line by line? She's she's shallow. And she's vapid and she's a little bit racist. <laughs> but is she dumb? I don't think she's I don't think she's that dumb outside that scene, which is also the one scene where I kind of had sympathy for her. And I wonder if well, when she's being felt up by a creepy producer who's trying to persuade her, like he's basically trying to Harvey Weinstein her up with his I'm going to buy you a drink whether you say you don't want it or not. And then I'm going to try to get my hand up your skirt. So. I feel like maybe Buck Henry thought that would come across as too uncomfortable unless he played it like for the comedy of her being incredibly stupid in that moment. Well, she's not incredibly stupid. She's of moderate intelligence, I, I believe, is is the line. And I think uh, of moderate intelligence is a pretty good description uh, of Suzanne. But I think she just also has a pretty limited view and limited curiosity of the world around her. Like one scene that kind of sticks out to me in terms of defining her character um, not in terms of her intelligence per se, but more just in terms of her self-awareness is when Larry's mom is talking to her about having kids and how it will affect her career. And she's looking at it not through the lens of how the time commitment of kids would affect her career. She's thinking about how it would affect her body, you know, and that she would get fat. She's just like so laser focused on the surface level of everything that you feel that lack of interiority, that lack of self-reflection that, you know, I think you could broaden out to stupidity, but it's kind of a more nuanced form of lack of emotional intelligence, I guess. Well, why don't we talk a little about how Nicole Kidman brings that across? I mean, this was kind of a breakthrough role for her. She'd been in movies like Days of Thunder and Billy Bathgate, flirting. Like, there's a couple of different movies that she'd had significant roles in, but nothing really this significant. And she apparently, they really wanted Meg Ryan for this role. Gus Van Sant was fixed on having Meg Ryan play it. And I think Meg Ryan could have played it fine. But Nicole Kidman called him up at home and said, I was destined to play this role. Uh-huh. And he cast her having like never seen her audition. Uh, just basically, he said that she wanted it so bad that she he thought that she would work really, really hard at it, <laughs> which is just a bizarre casting story as far as I'm concerned. But fitting for this character, mm-hmm. a character who, you know, is convinced that wanting something bad enough entitles you to have it. I'm going to speculate here, and I mentioned this a little earlier on the show, is that when I saw this in 1995, I think one of the big reasons I liked it so much was her, because she was somebody who I hadn't seen in movies that much before. I'd seen Days of Thunder and Flirting, uh, both of which I like, but both of which are not really about her at all. I mean, she has to be second to uh, Tom Cruise as my favorite movie character name, Cold Trickle, (laughs) (laughs) in uh, in Days of Thunder. And then then Flirting is really, you know, she's maybe a Third and third line of the cast behind Tandy Newton and Noah Taylor. So um, this is her sort of coming out, and she's just so stunning, and you just know immediately that this she's going to be huge. She's going to be a huge star. 
that she has that kind of charisma and snap. I mean, there's so, she brings so much like force to this this role that it is actually hard for me to imagine Meg Ryan or anybody else playing it because it's such a Nicole Kidman part. It's very uh, shrewd and calculating, and I, you know, I never felt her character as being dumb either. I think maybe my issue with the character is the same issue I have with Faye Dunaway and network which is that she is too much of like a walking metaphor like she is television in the same way that faye dunaway is tv and representative of all the garbage values that 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 um, entails but uh performance is kind of undeniable here yeah and she she'd been noticeable before did you ever see dead calm uh, uh yeah i mean she's really good in that but i mean i think I mean, she gets to play a real character here, and, and and you know, there's no denying she's an extraordinary looking woman. I think she was cast for her looks a lot, or not really given that much to do beyond her looks. And here, obviously, her appearance plays a huge part of the character, but there's so much more going on. I think this is the film that kind of made her career as we now know it. I feel like part of that is just the range we see from her here. I mean, she's kind of introduced to doing this almost Marilyn Monroe-esque, like, breathy Bambi voice that just crawls straight up my spine and chews on it. I hate it so much. And I think it's meant to be grating. But that that switch that I mentioned in the keynote where she jumps between yeah, this blank, cheery artificiality, the, the artificiality of the weather girl, and this, like, conniving the femme fatale who's out to do her husband in, I think you get to see a real range from her, and it's really entertaining. And strangely, even when she's plotting the murder of her husband, she's never less likable than when she's monologuing to the camera against the white background which we ultimately reveal is sort of like some sort of strange audition tape she she thinks she's making but like when she is being quote unquote the most herself that's when the character is the most repugnant so I mean in in the end what exactly is this movie about is it about (laughs) the the repugnancy of artificial media personalities is it about the emptiness of the climb for fame like this feels like a satire and Buck Henry definitely thought that he was making a satire about breaking down a part of society and questioning it. What For you guys, what do you think the target here is? Very broadly speaking, I think it's just narcissism. Like, Because I, I, so much of Suzanne's desire is framed as wanting to be seen. Like it all stems from her seeing herself on camera. You know, so much of how she's framed in this movie is like people l- watching her and people looking at her. There's that line, I believe Lydia says in one of her confessionals, like if people are watching, it makes you a better person. And I think like that mentality of like just the desire to be seen and to be famous independent of doing anything to earn that attention is maybe what is being sent up here. That's kind of an interesting thought because you wouldn't necessarily say that To Die For is a satire of television directly in the way that a film like Network is, but more, as you say, you say narcissism, but of the culture that it reflects and inspires. Yeah, like that's what when I said earlier, like I feel like there's a little bit of like the nascent stages of reality television stardom happening here. Like that's kind of what I'm talking about is that desire just to be on a screen regardless of why you're there, what you've done to earn your place there. It's it's an interesting time to be having this discussion because we're recording this on the day that like Logan Paul offended the entire internet by vlogging a a dead body in a in Japan's suicide forest. For future listeners, Logan Paul was a YouTube person. (laughs) (laughs) 
and <laughs> like we'll need to remind them next week. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but it's I mean it's raised a lot of thoughts that have come up over and over and over again about doing anything for fame, doing anything for your fifteen minutes to make people pay attention to you. And uh, a colleague of mine sent me a clip of somebody who responded to the whole imbroglio by posting a video of himself talking about how he would be perfectly willing to die to be in one of Logan Paul's videos because Logan Paul was famous and Logan Paul was a maverick and he admired Logan Paul so much. And in an environment where it really doesn't matter what you do to get on the, on a screen, as long as you're on a screen and lots of people are seeing you, I think this movie was tapping into something that has just gotten bigger and bigger ever since. I think it would also come off as a lot meaner toward uh, small town New England if it weren't for the empathy we kind of talked about. Uh, Gus Van Sant showing to Joaquin Phoenix character and, and Alison Follin's character, who's she's terrific in this movie. And, and, and I'm sorry we haven't seen her more. She really does not do that much. But um, that's a fantastic performance. That scene with her and Nicole Kidman in the in the dressing room where Nicole mm-hmm. Kidman's trying on lingerie and Lydia's just watching her with this sort of blank admiration is my favorite scene in the movie. And it's because for me, I didn't really understand why the Lydia character was there for the longest time. And at that moment, it just kind of snaps into focus the kind of effect that Suzanne has on people. And even when she's not meaning to, because she's thinking about herself, she's not thinking about what that effect is. But I mean, I don't think that that's a a love or lust relationship. I think like so many people in this movie, she just, she sees her as this sort of iconic thing. And you can see where she would think that she would fit well on a screen because everybody looks at her with that kind of like blank, I can't believe this is a real wonder. Well, we'd be interested in hearing what other people have to say about what this movie is is about, what it's getting at. Normally, this is where we would transition into feedback, but we're going to do something a little different this time around. Stay tuned. So we're pretty short on feedback this week, probably because everybody was busy with the holidays and you didn't have time to write in. We're hoping that you spent those holidays lolling in the Italian sun, eating fresh apricots and reading German love poetry, assuming that's your bag. So instead, we're going to follow up with some requests that we keep getting from social media from people asking for our top 10 movie lists of 2017. Apparently, I'm the only one of us that published a top well, top 15 list in the publication that I write for. Everybody else published them via Twitter. So this is going to be exciting and revealing, I guess, to those of you that are not assiduously following everybody on Twitter. Genevieve, uh, let's start with you. Instead of feedback this week, we're going to hit the, the bottom half of our top 10 movies, and then we'll cover the top half in part two of this podcast. So we're going to do a lightning round, starting with your number 10 movie of 2017 and counting up to number six. Okay, my number 10 movie of 2017 was Edgar Wright's Baby driver. Uh, For me, it was just all about the filmmaking, the pacing, the editing, the practical effects, and of course, the music. They just all convened to make a fairly straightforward heist, one last job picture into something really unique and special and most of all fun. Keith, passing to you. I'm the champion of the underdog here, so I'm going to go. My number 10 film of the year is a film called uh, Star Wars, The Last (laughs) Jedi, uh, which I thought in, in the year, in a year of a lot of Richer than they had to be uh, blockbusters from from Wonder Woman to War for the Planet of the Apes. Uh, I thought Star Wars The Last Jedi was the best of the bunch. I think it's a rich uh, revisiting of that world and, and kind of looking at things from a different angle, uh, visually striking. Uh, yeah, I was, I was a big fan. Uh, I mean, a Star Wars fan to begin with, but this was a special movie, I thought. Tasha? I'm going to be super brief on these because anybody who wants to listen to me rail about my top 10 at great length can listen to four hours of film spotting where I talked about <laughs> this with Josh and Adam and Michael Phillips at the Tribune. Uh, my number 
number 10 is Professor Marston and the Wonder Women, uh, directed, written and directed by Angela Robinson. It's a really terrific, smart, sexy little film about the man who created Wonder Woman and the two women in a relationship with him and kind of how that relationship both struggled against the morality of their, their era and produced a really interesting comic. Scott? My number 10 is Nocturama, which is the uh, new film by Bertrand Bonello, who did a film called House of Pleasures that I liked quite a bit a few years ago. He's got an extraordinarily elegant style. It's about uh, a group of young terrorists who commit a series of actions around Paris and then try hide out in a mall. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's it's really provocative. I think if, if people even bothered paying attention to small foreign language films it would have inspired many think pieces but it never but it didn't it would have been great for malls week at the av club <laughs> it would have been good for malls week maybe maybe it will be a revival it's currently on netflix so if you want to check it out and you should it's it's really quite something what about your number nine Genevieve. Uh, my number nine is a little film called Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last <laughs> Jedi, uh, for reasons that Keith helpfully just explicated. So I won't say much more other than it was kind of the first Star Wars film that I really felt on an emotional level and brought a complexity to a story that I always felt was like pretty, you know, black and white or light and dark, so to speak. And I think it just like took it to a different level, and I, I loved it a lot. Uh, Keith, what's your number nine? My number nine is Mudbound, which we talked about a little bit in the last episode but it's uh, D. Reese's sort of dual-stranded family novel set uh, in the years before and after World War II in the South. Uh, it's on Netflix right now. Uh, check it out. Uh, I, I, will, I will cease from complaining about it not getting enough attention if more people go and watch it. <laughs> Tasha? Uh, my number nine is a little film called Lady Bird, which is the uh, first solo directorial project by Greta Gerwig. If you don't know why we love this film, you could perhaps listen to episode 103, where we talk about it at great length in comparison with Ghost World, or there are those film spotting episodes where all four of us talk about it. We've said a lot about how much we love this film and how much we connect to it, how terrific Shersha Ronan is, how terrific Laurie Metcalf is, basically just how terrific the performances and the, and the thoughts in this film are. So once again, we like this movie. Number nine for me. Scott? Uh, my number nine is a movie called Rat Film. It's a documentary about rats in Baltimore and, and what they have to say about the social fabric of that city. It's like a cross between David Simon and Errol Morris if they made a movie together this would be the result, Rat Film. It's really compelling and experimental and thought-provoking and wonderful. I'm not sure if it's available quite yet, but I assume it's going to be one of those things that surfaces on one of these streaming services, and people should definitely look for it. Genevieve, number eight. My number eight is A Ghost Story, a film we covered in depth on episode 87. And uh, if you listen to me on that podcast, you probably wouldn't have guessed it. It would be my number eight film of the year, but uh, and I wouldn't have either at that point. But it's one of those that I kind of haven't been able to stop turning over in my mind all these months later. Uh, it just feels it feels unusual and special when you're watching it, but it becomes more so kind of the longer you sit with the feelings it leaves you with. So number eight, A Ghost Story. Keith, what's your number? My number eight is a film we just talked about called Baby Driver, and you laid out some really good reasons for that. I, I think it's just a, a, a thrilling piece of filmmaking with, with a lot of heart to it. Uh, Edgar Wright is, is, we already knew he was a real deal, but this is a, this is a kind of a reminder of that. Tasha? Uh, my number eight is The Breadwinner, uh, an animated film about a young girl in Afghanistan who has to cross-dress as a young boy in order to support her family when her father is taken to jail. This is a movie that I might not have seen if Genevieve hadn't pressed me to see it. <laughs> She's doing the 
the victory gesture right now. Um, and that's even though it is directed by Nora Twami, the co-director of Secret of Kells, which the things that come out of uh, that studio, cartoon studio, Secret of Kells, The Song of the Sea, and now The Breadwinner are among my, my favorite animated films. They're just so distinctive and beautiful. But this one is also very much based on the real world, very painful, very intimate, and very emotionally ev- evocative. So thanks, Genevieve. You're and thanks, Nora Twami. <laughs> Uh, Scott, number eight. Uh, my number eight is A Quiet Passion, uh, Terrence Davies' uh, biopic about Emily Dickinson. I'm usually very wary of both biopics and biopics specifically about artists because it's very hard to make that connection between an artist's life and her work. And I think this film does a very eloquent and, and moving job of doing both. And, and it's done in that very t- Terrence Davies style. It's got slashing wit and uh, but a lot of heart as well and a wonderful cynthia nixon performance on it's on amazon and should be hanging out there for a while does it do it pollock does it crack it wide open? cracks it wide open <laughs> unlike pollock uh genevieve your number seven my number seven is a little film called dunkirk i actually missed this one on the big screen much to the chagrin of everyone in this room <laughs> um, so did, did you really see it then? yeah exactly well i was prepared when i caught up with on a screener to be totally underwhelmed because i'd heard so much about how it's just all about this large scale filmmaking it needs to be appreciated on the largest format possible and et cetera, et cetera. But while I do think that those elements definitely translate to a smaller screen, and that should not keep you from watching it uh, on a small screen if you haven't yet, what really impressed me with Dunkirk was storytelling, uh, specifically the three-pronged structure, which feels so much more organic and unobtrusive than it should, and gives this film a really fleet feeling that I would have never assumed it would have based on literally everything I knew about (laughs) the film and Christopher Nolan. So it was a kind of a hugely pleasant surprise for this uh, war film averse viewer so dunkirk number seven keith that's my number seven too it's also, also dunkirk and and uh the line on, on nolan is he's a very cold technical and emotional director and I, I never really bought that and and there's a strand there's a subplot in this film featuring barry keoghan who you also saw in the killing of a sacred deer that's among the most moving things i've seen in a, in a film this year it's it's a terrific strand in a in a multi-strand films all which are, are remarkable in their own way um you know i, I highly recommend dunkirk tasha uh, my number seven is Mary and the Witch's Flower, which is uh, the first animated film from Studio Ponyak, the successor, more or less, to Japan's famous Studio Ghibli, with Hayao Miyazaki retiring and Aiso Takahata retiring. Ghibli more or less has shut down production. They're only really involved in like producing and, and helping other animators. So a lot of the directors and producers and animators moved over to form this new studio. And their first project feels and looks like a Studio Ghibli movie. It's so satisfying to see this tradition continue so well. It's another kind of magical girl story based on an English language fantasy novel. And it is just once again, a a joyful and exciting and visually gorgeous experience. Uh, It was directed by Hiramasa Yonabayashi, who also directed The Secret World of Arietti. And it just it, it captures the Ghibli magic all over again. Most people will not have seen this film yet. I caught it at Fantastic Fest in Austin. As with so many films picked up by G Kids in New York, it played uh, briefly in New York and L.A. in order to qualify for Oscars. But most people will get the chance to see it when it opens wide in the States on January 18th. So, Scott, you want to wrap Tasha, us up with seven? You can't, don't out-obscure me on your top <laughs> list. I don't like it. I don't like it. Um, my number seven is... 
mother exclamation point, which I'm sure you heard us talk about, uh, episode 97, uh, pairing it with uh, Louis Bunuel's The Exterminating Angel. If the film didn't irritate me so much, it would be even higher on my <laughs> list. But Aronofsky does extraordinary work in this film. It's the, certainly the most audacious studio film I saw this year. And in the fact that you can come up with so many different interpretive frameworks for it, and all of them are valid. I mean, it's just maybe the most interesting movie to talk about this year. And I think it's going to be something that's really going to be sticky in a film that we'll, we'll be referring back to years from now. So uh, Mother, my number seven. Genevieve, what's your number six? Number six is a film called Mudbound, which Keith just talked about. We have a lot of overlap, Keith, uh, which Keith just talked about. And we talked about on our last episodes when I suggested it for your next picture show. So I'm not going to say a whole lot more about it other than this one is just all about the performances for me. It's really an ensemble piece that skips around between a lot of different POVs. And if there were one week link in this cast, I don't think it would work half as well as it does. But as it stands, I think it works exceptionally well. So number six, Mudbound. Keith. Uh, my number six is The Shape of Water from uh, Guillermo del Toro. And I'm not sure why a sort of an, an erotic remake of, uh, of Creature <laughs> from the Black Lagoon or one of its sequels would, would make sense. But it's it's this, I think, remarkable kind of fairy tale for grownups uh, set in the Cold War with a romance between a very deeply makeup uh, actor, Doug Jones, and Sally Hawkins as a mute custodian at a facility and it's got great performances from uh you know, richard jenkins and and michael shannon uh um you know laying it on but <laughs> but laying it on quite quite effectively and uh octavia spencer yeah, it's, i liked it a lot tasha yeah, it's a really good film. Uh, my number six is Scott's number seven. I also went for Mother, the Darren Aronofsky <laughs> film, for much the same reasons. I, it it got my back up a little bit in the theater, but much like Ghost Story with with Genevieve, I couldn't stop thinking about it and considering all of the different fascinating ways that film is put together and all the different fascinating things that that it says. And I think apart from maybe the level of commentary we got here on Blade Runner 2049, I'm not sure there was a film this year I thought about analytically more. So uh, I think Scott has mostly said it all about Mother. It's a pretty tremendous experience, especially in the theater. It's kind of emotionally overwhelming. It's some really amazing crackerjack like direction uh visual filmmaking and that's my number six scott uh, my number six is uh, a film called Lady Bird. <laughs> I really, what I'm not even. What do I have to even say about this thing? We we we, we, we all. Well, it's from Greta it. Gerwig, and it stars Saoirse Ronan. Uh, yeah, yeah. I like all. I like all the things that everyone else likes about this movie, and it's just one of those things where it's just loaded with detail. It's uh, obviously a personal story, and you can tell how personal it is because um, there's just so much sketch work done in in the writing and in the performances and in the period detail and the evocation of place. All that stuff makes it makes a difference and um it's all just so deftly handled i mean what a pleasure to watch this film I, I, you know there's a reason why nearly a hundred percent of critics went for ladybird because it's just it's a pleasure to watch uh, what's to complain about so that's my number six well i imagine it might show up again as we continue this countdown on the second half <laughs> yep well that'll wrap up the bottom half of our 2017 favorites list so in the second half of the episode we'll cover our top five and then next time we're hoping to get back to talking about whatever you guys want to talk about we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations to reach us you can leave a short voicemail at 773 Two three four nine seven three zero, or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. This would be a good time to talk about your favorite films of 2017. We might feature your responses on a future episode or post them on Facebook for discussion. 
wraps up this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll bring in Itania and talk over how both these films weigh women's ambition, their flaws, and the culpability of the media in their downfall. Look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we hope you'll keep listening, because what's the point of doing anything worthwhile if there's nobody listening? When people are listening, it makes us all better people. Mm-hmm.